Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hey there, and welcome back to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and today we have another special guest, Erica Olinsky Johansson. Erica, I would love it if you would take a moment to introduce yourself and kind of speak to the piece of the healthcare IT puzzle that you hold on to. Gosh, thank you so much, Joy. It's such a pleasure to be here and getting to talk with you. I've been in healthcare tech for about 15 years and have worn many hats in that time and started out in marketing communications where I founded the HITSM Twitter community. And it's been amazing to see that community continue to be engaged and prolific as it is today and continue on even in 2022, which has been been quite incredible. I also work kind of as a consultant for several healthcare innovation companies and help advise them on their media and communication strategies. But I also am the executive director of a nonprofit that I started called August Artists earlier this year as well. And August Artists is a initiative that focuses on providing families that are inpatient in hospitals and spending long periods of time in the hospital, giving them access to window crayons so they can decorate the front door of their room and then also art commemoration services so we can take the artwork that they make and allow them the opportunity to bring it home in the form of a poster. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there, but I want to start with the last thing that you mentioned. So why is it so important? How did you get involved in August Artists? So a few years ago, my younger son, I have two boys. My youngest son was diagnosed with an aggressive form of brain cancer. And so we spent a significant amount of time in the hospital. And unfortunately, with something like a cancer diagnosis you contemplate some of the darkest things that you unfortunately would ever have to. And so in the hospital, one of the things that I use to help calm myself and, and even process the grief of, of really kind of losing sight of my son as a kind of typical infancy and toddler was by drawing with crayons on the hospital room door when we were inpatient. And I would draw pictures and those pictures became iconic references of what hospital room we were in at any given time. For example, the first one I drew was a picture of Hey Hey, which is the chicken from Moana. 
My son loved that movie and watched it over and over on repeat. And so that hospital room that we stayed in for that inpatient stay became the Hey Hey room. And we had other ones that I drew a Wally on. And then there was an ICU room we stayed in for a long period of time that had Squirt from Finding Nemo on the door. And we've had several other characters drawn throughout the, the years, years plural now, from the hospitalizations that we've had. But there was so much joy that was brought to that both from us being able to have an outlet to process that grief and what we were going through at that given time. But what was also really wonderful, and that's something unique to the experience of being in the hospital, is and especially oncology, um, a lot of the families can't actually leave the floor in some cases because their immune systems are impaired or there are other restrictions. So a lot of the time getting out of the room is even an enormous feat. So some of the kids that would be receiving treatment would go for a walk around the actual hospital room floor and just look at the different pictures. And so what I noticed was that not only was this one activity helpful for me on an individual level, but it really helped bring joy to other people there that were experiencing what we were as well. And as I was unfortunately contemplating my son's mortality and my own and this whole concept of legacy that came to mind in the wee hours of the morning, one of the evenings we were there for a chemo treatment, it occurred to me that there was an opportunity to potentially give back to the community by making these crayons available for all the families that were there. And then also just honoring and commemorating the achievements that people have when they come into the hospital, those experiences that you have when you receive a cancer diagnosis and you are stretched and pushed with your endurance in ways that are unimaginable. To be able to, to recognize that and celebrate that for what it is with something positive, I think holds a lot of strength and becomes a tool for healing as well. Well, okay. My brain goes into logistics, honestly. I'm just like, are they all, so are we supplying crayons and art supplies? And that is it, I'm sure our hospitals are different. Is it on a window? Is it on a door? Is it removable? Like, and then in, in what way do you get to commemorate it? Or is it through pictures of turning it into a poster or maybe like a... I don't know, a, a sketch or tra like a transcribing it somehow? Like how, how does that process work? The crayons are really unique. They're like these wax crayons that draw on glass very easily. You could draw on paper with them, but one of the things that's unique, at least to the inpatient hospital experience, is that nearly every single one of the hospital room doors themselves have a window on them. And I believe this is also for a safety Thing as well. I think that's part of kind of just the standard organization of how a lot of these hospital rooms are, are architected. But there's a window on the door that can be, usually has blinds that can create some sense of privacy, but also give a window obviously into the room if somebody needs to walk by and see what's going on inside. Well, these windows are on every single hospital room door. And so these glass crayons work wonderfully on that as being kind of this really nice canvas for drawing this artwork. And so we provide, we donate to uh, hospital systems, packs of these crayons that all the families can then have access to. There's both a community box that's also available on site, but for the most part, our goal is to be able to provide a box of these crayons for all of the patient families. So they all have their own if they wanna kind of bring those back also for repeat and patient stays. So that's part one. And then on the box, there's a sticker with a QR code that has more information that the family can then go and see both from an inspiration standpoint, if you want to see artwork that they can use for some of the art pieces that they want to put together themselves, 
They can see what other people have done. And then also that provides a link to art commemoration. And so the way we've handled the art commemoration requests are mostly through advocacy and working alongside the child life department, just from a visibility standpoint. But we truly, we truly try to provide a, a turnkey experience for the family. So they fill out a, a request just through like a Google form that includes the image itself taken from cell phone of just the picture. And then once we get that, we remove the background of the image because the, trans, the uh, reflection of the glass in contrast with the wax crayons provides us a really clean separation, interestingly enough. So we can very easily remove the background and then we take that digital image and put it onto a white poster that we print and then make and deliver available make available to the families themselves. That's amazing. That's, I love it. So if somebody wanted to sponsor or contribute or get involved, I imagine it would be going to your website, but can they basically pay for a set of community crayons or helping with the payment of commemoration, that sort of thing? Um, All of our donations are available through our website. We also do corporate sponsors too. That can just be done through kind of communicating with us directly. And you can email us at info at augustartist.org. But we are a 501c3 organization, which is really great. Being able to get that status allows us to be tax deductible for both individuals and corporations, which was a big milestone for us in our launch earlier this year. Yeah, congratulations. So let's talk about, well, I know that caregiving and your personal experience with your with your boys has definitely kind of seeped its way over into your professional life. And I know that you have taken on your perspective to help inform other healthcare organizations on how to make sure that they're incorporating the patient and caregiver perspective into their offerings. Can you talk a little bit about that? I really wound up, I think, more so in that space of embracing the work and professional life and making it as cohesive as possible, really within the last year or so. What I found was I was working as a contractor when my son got diagnosed with his cancer diagnosis in 2019. And through his treatment, I worked as a contractor and just kind of did that grind that was flexible enough to work around the side of our appointments and around around the hospitalizations. But once COVID happened and we we got through that, I really felt compelled to try to resume a sense of normalcy when it came to work. And so actually went and worked for two different organizations in a full-time capacity for a period of time. And what occurred to me in that, that space of time was how challenging I, or how kind of not set up for success I was putting myself between the caregiving responsibilities that I had and the work responsibilities that I felt compelled and passionate about pursuing. And so what became apparent to me over the course of a year or so was that for me to move forward both professionally and personally in my life, and also make sure that I'm aligned with the responsibilities I have as a caregiver and as a mom, and also just as a person and a a human, and the things that I'm passionate about professionally, I needed a lot more alignment with the two. And, And I really wanted my caregiving experience in particular to be a tailwind for the things that I did professionally. And so within the last year or so, I've really tried to use my caregiving experience as a North Star, if you will, in terms of the work that I pursue, that it's informing me every moment and any given day 
about healthcare as an industry and as a business and the patient experience and the caregiver experience. And as an industry veteran, I know that those insights hold value. And so what I've really aimed to do is, is there a middle ground there where I can take the experience and lessons learned on a day-to-day basis as a caregiver and as a patient myself and use those insights to help inform the industry and, and drive industry change, challenge the status quo, really lead and engage in conversations that are pushing the envelope in terms of innovation and support thought leaders as well in doing so and doing similar activities. And so that's where I've been at today is really trying to create this kind of converging perfect storm of initiatives so that everything works together rather than in contest with one another. It's a great idea. It's easy in theory and hard in practice. So if you're able to do it, like kudos to you. And I'm curious to know because you are from the industry and you know what initiatives were out there trying to get across the finish line. I would love to compare maybe some of like the keywords or hot takes that we're trying to to accomplish as an industry that compare with the reality of being a patient slash and caregiver. So when we think about interoperability, for example, like what is your experience versus, you know, in the theory versus practice of where we stand there? Absolutely. So one of the the things that was, this is a great example. When my first, when my son was first diagnosed, I vividly remember the social worker coming to visit me in the hospital room and giving me a questionnaire asking me about our family status. And the questions on that were truly all in alignment with the social determinants of health initiatives that the industry is is focused on. And I knew that at the time I was even like, this is an SDOH survey. (laughs) It's like, that's what they're trying to look for. And the questions that they were asking were all reasonable, but they were one-dimensional in many ways too. The circumstances my family found itself in, although we're not financial per se, the reality was that we had actually sold our house the same day within hours of finding my son's tumor. So questions like, do you have a home to live in? (laughs) We're poignantly relying on context to be able to answer with honesty and integrity and, 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 transparency. And what that turned into, although I could say, yes, I have a home, what it did though, was it it helped inform me in a unique way so that I could ensure that we were advocating for ourselves properly. Because what I could see the hospital was asking, what would have led to them just saying, yes, check that box, they're fine. Really, we needed a high touch experience of social work because of where our family was at that given time. We had severe mental health risks impacting our experience of what we were going through. There were employment questions and challenges around that. There were this base level pyramid was kind of obliterated truly with the whole circumstances around my son's diagnosis and the family situation at the time. And so it translated into a lot of advocacy. And so that's one in particular that really stands out to me is social determinants of health are so much more than just a checkbox of, do you have a good socioeconomic status? Do you have good mental health? Do you have two parents that are educated? You know, those things are important and they absolutely help identify what tools are in the toolbox a family might have to navigate healthcare. But truthfully, they're not all of the entire picture that, that would correlate into health outcomes at the end of the day. And so 
that's one thing that I would love to see healthcare providers definitely try to understand the patient experience more of is looking at, okay, circumstantially, what are those families experiencing at any given moment, meeting them where they're at, and then maybe piecing together where the social determinants of health traditionally might exist, but what other risk factors might impair that family's ability to heal fully from this experience? Are there other factors that are going to impact the ability of the parent to heal? One of the things I think about too is at the time, my son was only five months old and exclusively breastfed. So I was exclusively breastfeeding him when all of this happened. As any mom who's ever breastfed a child knows, that is an incredibly intense balance of supply and demand. And there's an experience with that, that if those things tip, it can really impact a lot of other things and including just some, you know, the parent's confidence in themselves and their ability to problem solve. And so something as simple as that, I think meeting the family where they're at and knowing, okay, well, your breastfeeding journey is going to be impaired because your son just had a brain surgery that's now impacted his ability to feed effectively. How can we work alongside you so that both mom and baby get what they need and just truthfully, that's not how healthcare is orchestrated today as a system. They're going to look at the baby. And they're going to supplement the baby and make sure that their weight gain is proper. They're not going to look at the mom's ability to feed the baby holistically and look at the nutrition and the outcomes of the family as a whole. My brain also goes into quality measurement and like, okay, what we measure, what matters. And that's how we decide like what questions we're going to ask and what we're going to be tracking over time. Did you, do you feel like maybe there are certain measures that are either missing or incomplete or I don't know, just missing the mark in general? Like, is it a missing conversation or is it a, just an incomplete or something else entirely? Cause I just think like, how would you fit that viewpoint into the system? One of the things I'm really optimistic about is the opportunities for something like an AI to help bridge the gap between health outcomes for multiple parties that are involved with the same network. So what I'm encouraged to see is health outcomes for the individual, which I think we're systemically looking at really a, a good structure to be able to address, like did X happen and did that individual have the outcomes that we were looking for? I think what I really would love to see is looking at the health of the network as a whole and the impact that each of those individuals have on other points in the network. And that is going to be exceptionally challenging without a tool like artificial intelligence that can help bridge that gap and accommodate for the nuances that would be needed to be able to measure things like that. So I'm, I'm encouraged and optimistic that the industry is moving in a direction where those things might be possible. But I think, you know, systemically, it's definitely challenging to say, oh, my son's diagnosis impacted my health. And so as a result, how do we accommodate those variables and how do we measure those things so we could then prove it? And did my health or my son's health impact my other son's well-being as well, even though he physically isn't impaired, to the best of my knowledge? <laughs> you know, he definitely has had an emotional toll that he's experienced. And if you use even things like a, a traditional ACEs survey to look at what these adverse experiences might have on him long-term, he absolutely will have an impact from that. And so what can we be doing today, even though in the it, before he would even be symptomatic of any kind of underlying mental health issues, what can we be doing today to support him and his health so his outcomes are actually better 
before he's even symptomatic. I like that. I also like the idea of AI because I think of, especially those questionnaires, I feel like what you're trying to get to is to point the patient or the aunt, caregivers and their families to tools and resources. And that might differ based on the community that somebody lives in. So it would be nice if it was able to identify like location, what is available in your area, and also what is available online or through technology to kind of have a complete offering. And I know hospitals are in a unique position within their community to be able to be like a central point of dispersing that type of information. And I'm sure that they could use support and improvement as sophisticated as they are. I think care coordination, at least from my experience, the function of care coordination as it exists today in the health system is still too transactional. I think we're looking at a, you are inpatient and you are moving to an outpatient scenario. What transactions need to occur in order for that transition to happen? That is really the function today of care coordination, where I think there's a huge opportunity is when you look at the patient journey overall and you don't look at the individual inpatient stays as these kind of milestone events that happen that define that patient journey because the patient journey is a lot more than the inpatient stays. Okay. Thank you for that input. I want to transition to talking a little bit about the evolution of communication. And I guess that kind of ties us into the HIDSM community. That is something that was your, you know, you started it. And for people who don't know what that is, would you mind introducing the topic and kind of helping them get up to speed? Yeah. So in 2010, the HITSM community was born. It was an acronym kind of inspired by some of the other healthcare dominant communities at the time on Twitter. For example, healthcare social media or HCSM was a very prominent and popular one and still is to this day. HITSM was modeled in a similar vein because it was similar and familiar to some of the other conversations that were happening. However, HITSM was really focused on expanding that conversation to include the IT professional. At that time, Meaningful Use and the High Tech Act were really driving a lot of the digital transformation that was happening in the industry. And so IT professionals were really emerging as a critical and key stakeholder in the conversation and dialogue, and they were essential to making sure that these initiatives were able to happen. So HITSM was created with the idea that there could be an opportunity for us to have a conversation with a broader, a broader audience that would include the IT professionals very intentionally in that conversation and really discuss the future of healthcare and the role of technology at that time, the role of, of IT infrastructure and how those things impact our ability to have the dynamic applications that we've even become you know, used to using today. What's interesting is that at the time, social media was still seen as a communications tool between consumers and individuals and not something that was really enterprise at that point. Um, most things were all organic at that time on social. Businesses really didn't even know how to have a, a proper brand on Twitter, for example. So in the time that HITSM was born to where we are now, there's been this convergence and blending of these digital emerging technologies like the APIs that exist at the heart of social media solutions and how data is communicated now between healthcare systems themselves. 
And so it's been a wild ride actually to see all of those things come together because at the time and in the early days, they were really thought of as entirely separate initiatives. There's no way that social media would influence the decisions we were making in healthcare. That was accepted in 2010. 2022, it's hard to imagine a world where we would not imagine our digital presence having an impact on our health in some way. And there's this you know, broad advocacy now for our digital self to be recognized as an influential piece or even a symptomatic piece of our human experience or just as a real part of our human experience in, in, in many ways as well. Well, I'll, okay, so for I'll add that the hit, there's a weekly conversation that takes place on Twitter, Fridays, 9 a.m. Pacific time. And it basically brings together stakeholders from all over the industry, whether it's an individual or somebody representing, you know, a particular aspect or perspective from healthcare or technology or IT and, you know, have, you know, several questions around a specific topic. So I know that was like you were instrumental in getting that started. I'm sure you've taken quite a, a, a bit of a break and are now back to sort of be the facilitator of those conversations. How do you envision you know, a lot has changed on Twitter, right? And and in social media in general. So like, how do you see the evolution of our like, like congregating to have these important conversations going? You know, what do you think it'll look like even a year from now or five years from now? Yeah, I think the conversations are needed more than ever. I think one of the best things we can do is continue asking ourselves what if to begin with. We need to challenge ourselves to think about the future in which we're headed so that we can stay focused and aligned with that direction. And the way to do that is by having an ongoing dialogue. And what I love about Twitter is that it truly democratizes that conversation in a unique way compared to a lot of the other platforms that are out there that have a very heavy algorithmic influence in what content's viewed or shown to different users. And so I I think Twitter is, is still an incredibly powerful platform, although it still seems to be, you know, one of the ones that's, you know, not in the, the front and center for a lot of people. And some people don't even still have a Twitter account, which is absolutely fine. But I think what's really, it's just really great because it brings people together that might not otherwise have a way to connect with one another. And they can begin to become familiar with one another and even have a dialogue and talk about ideas that are threaded together with a a keyword phrase like H-I-T-S-M. And the conversation can be tracked and followed and be used as an informational and educational tool at the same time as it's also, you know, igniting ideas and and sparking innovation and and challenging thoughts in the ways that we've done things so that they can be thought of differently. Are there is there anything in particular that you can think of that maybe a conversation on Twitter sparked an innovation or that you could see clearly like ah they got that influence from that conversation. Anything you could point to? It's less about the ideas and more about the collaborators. And so one of the things that's been really striking to me is the relationships that I was able to build on Twitter. 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago now, and the role that those people have played in the trajectory of my career and of my personal life. I have some very dear and close friends, a few that even just come to, to come to mind that 
I not only was able to build a you know a friendship with, but these are colleagues now that I've I you know haven't formally worked with per se. We all have a similar mission. We're trying to make healthcare better in the future for everybody. And we all have different pathways about how we're aiming to do that. And these people, we become cheerleaders for one another. And we also live life together. You know, there's one person in particular that comes to mind who I met 12 years ago. And we found out we went to the same college and at different times. So we were both, we shared an alma mater. And we wound up later going and presenting at a conference together. And it was an industry conference. And so it led to us doing that. And then we ultimately did a couple contract gigs for some healthcare facilities together as well. And then we've even dreamed a little bit about some other things. But that's just one of a few examples that come to mind in terms of collaborations that have resulted just purely from getting to know people on Twitter alone um, and the communities that exist there. Well, to that end, your journey has definitely been unique. Do you have any advice for anybody either just starting their journey or even midway through their health IT or caregiver journey for that matter? Listen is always an important thing. Listening. Listen to what people are talking about and absorb and take in as much as you can. This industry is such a unique one. There is a learning curve and a language that you have to learn to speak. And you you will in time if you just immerse yourself in it and just jump jump in the water. You'll figure it out in six to 12 months. You'll be speaking the language and you won't even realize you were doing that. I'd say, so be patient with yourself in the learning curve, at least if you're very much getting started. Once you're in it and you're you're working through, listen and and just perceive and and try to understand what all the moving pieces are doing because this industry is also incredibly dynamic and evolving. And there's a lot of legacy and history behind a lot of the initiatives that are top of mind today. And in many cases, especially in healthcare, these are all things that have happened previously. Like we look at something like an ACO or HIEs, those initiatives aren't new per se. There's been several iterations over the past few decades that have resembled something similar. And so just knowing the history of where the industry's been is, I think, also really important on how you can ultimately be heard as a thought leader in the space. And then I think, you know, the other thing I would really encourage people to do is share your patient story, share your own personal story, and just share stuff, share content, share your thoughts, and be humble in doing so and welcoming of other people to chime in and respond however they might. And just be open to to growing and learning every single day. And I think there's more work to be done in healthcare than any one of us can accomplish in our single lifetime. And so it's truly a unique industry which you can commit your career intentions to and still have an immense amount of flexibility in terms of what you ultimately do under that umbrella. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I feel like this is an industry that moves quickly and there are challenges that no individual can accomplish by themselves. And so it is a prerequisite to be able to, you know, collaborate and work together. And, you know, sharing your story is like, and one of those easy, easier said than done, it's difficult to do too. So I really appreciate the fact that you have taken a courageous step in sharing 
your journey with the world and your perspective with our industry. And I feel very, very fortunate to have you in our community. And I will say that Erica is on our Hit Like a Girl Board of Advisors, and we are just you know, thrilled to have your expertise and influence in the direction of our community. So I just wanna say thank you for being who you are out in the world and doing what you do. And if people want to get in touch, work with you, follow you, where would you point them? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. That's probably the easiest place. I'm the great Chalupa, GR8, like how you might've written, um, have a great summer in your yearbook years ago. Um, the, the great Chalupa, happy to explain to you too, if you want to know more on the backstory where that came from. That's a, a fun little icebreaker. We have a second. Let's do it. Let's hear it. <laughs> so, it's, it's kind of a fun story, but not really. I don't know. <laughs> when I was in high school, one of the things that I would do and I was kind of known for was being the national anthem girl. So I would sing as the resident singer, any sporting event that I'd be at or our high school would have, they'd say, hey, Erica, can you be around at 7 p.m. on Friday? We need somebody to sing the national anthem. And so I sang a lot at these different events. And my dad at one point had videoed me singing at my brother's hockey game. And I grew up outside Chicago and the ice rink we were at was located in a suburb called Buffalo Grove. And so the recording was called like National Anthem at Buffalo Grove or something like that. It was nothing revolutionary. Well, years ago, when you would put these things onto a CD, I then wanted to take the thing on the CD and put it onto my computer so I could have the audio file on my computer. Well, when it imported all the data, it had Buffalo Grove as the track name, but it put the artist as very... or. Typically, they would use artists as various if there was just no data for that field. Well, somehow, I don't know where, it pulled in this data that said the artist was the great Chalupa. And it was just me singing on this track. So my brother and I thought this was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> and it turned into this very, very prolific inside joke that was never ending for years after that. And so, so yeah, I became the great Chalupa then. And then Twitter came out and I wasn't sure exactly what to use for a screen name. And I was still young enough. I didn't think about my professional appearance at that time. So I used the great Chalupa and it stuck. And here we are. I love it. So, okay. So you're telling me we need to do karaoke and that... I'm really good at the national anthem. <laughs> I'm not very good at karaoke, unfortunately. <laughs> but you know how many people can say that? Like... Not very, uh, singing the national anthem is one of the hardest songs out there to sing. So holy cow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's if you guys, yeah, if anyone's feeling really compelled, I'm sure you can find a recording of me somewhere on, on the YouTubes. That's great. Well, Erica, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait for our listeners to, to hear your story. I'm so thankful for it, Joy. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.